the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Today we're going to talk with several people. Among them, we'll talk with Peter Brooks, Senior Fellow of National Security Affairs at the Douglas and Sarah Allison Center for Foreign Policy. Uh, we're going to talk about the president's address to the UN earlier today. We're also going to talk with Carrie Garcia. She's the founder and CEO of Freedom Movement. They're, all, they're uh, presenting a Misfit Tribe Tour this Friday and Saturday at River West Church. We'll tell you all about it. It's a women's event. And we'll talk with Joe Dallas. He wrote an article that appeared first in the uh, Christian Research Institute, um, their publication. The title is Gay Christian and Acceptable Identity. It's an excellent article. We'll talk with him about that. And also, you can go to the Georgine Rice Show Facebook page for a link to that uh, that article as well. First of all, taking a look at some of today's headlines, there was a 7.1 magnitude earthquake. It struck near Mexico City this afternoon. The U.S. Geological Survey said killing at least 94 people, leaving multiple people reportedly trapped in collapsed buildings. It's difficult to even imagine being in such a situation, but that is the uh, the case at this time. The death toll from the earthquake has risen to 94 nationwide after the Mexico City government reported 30 people killed in the capital. Uh, Mexico State Governor Alfredo uh, Del Mazo, he said that the quake has uh, killed at least nine people in his state, uh, which borders Mexico City. Del Marzo said that a, a quarry worker was killed from a rock slide due to the quake and another died after being uh, hit by a falling lamppost. Uh, in these events, of course, it's difficult to know where to run uh, for safety. I saw images of what it looked like when the the quake was uh, was uh, uh, in full Force and the ground looked like rolling water. Uh, it, it was uh, it was interesting to watch, but of course terrifying at the same time. At least another forty two were killed in the central Mexican state of um, uh, let's see, Morelos. Uh, the governor there said that of these who died, twelve were in the city of um, uh, Johuito and four were in the state capital in that area. Well, the uh, Pueblo Interior Department reported 11 deaths in the central Mexican state following the powerful earthquake. And, of course, they're still trying to discover if there are others who are trapped. Uh, This event took place on the anniversary of a 1985 earthquake that destroyed large sections of central uh, Mexico City, killed at least 6,000 people. So this was a date uh, that uh, certainly rings with uh, memory for many in that area. Uh, also, the day before, they had just run uh, apparently an area-wide drill to prepare people for the possibility of an earthquake. So at least that was fresh in the minds of many, uh, of course, not anticipating that the following day there would be such an event. Meanwhile, Hurricane Maria continued to head toward the Virgin Islands and Puerto Rico uh, today as a potentially catastrophic Category 5 storm, leaving behind a devastated Dominica, uh, which Maria ravaged uh, with 165-mile-an-hour winds. The U.S. National Hurricane Center said in its 5 p.m. advisory, that's uh, local time, the extremely dangerous storm was on a forecast track to approach the Virgin Islands and Puerto Rico 
between tonight and Wednesday. And of course, they're ahead in time from uh, our time Pacific. Maria has uh, has uh, top sustained winds near 165 miles an hour, has located about 80 miles southeast of St. Croix and about 175 miles southeast of San Juan, Puerto Rico. The major hurricane was moving to the west northwest at uh, 10 miles per hour. Some fluctuations in intensity are likely during the next day or two, according to the National Weather Service. Conditions will continue to deteriorate across the U.S. and British Virgin Islands with the worst conditions there early Wednesday morning, according to a senior meteorologist, Janice Dean. Uh, Puerto Rico is forecast to take a direct hit from the major hurricane on Wednesday with the worst conditions uh, from late Wednesday morning through Wednesday afternoon. As Maria moves away from Dominica, the country's prime minister said the hurricane caused mind-boggling devastation on the ground. Puerto Rico is uh, forecast to take, as I mentioned, a direct hit from the major hurricane on Wednesday with the worst conditions from late Wednesday. Dominica Prime Minister Roosevelt Skerritt, uh, he posted on Facebook that the initial reports are of widespread devastation. He said, uh, that he feared that there would be deaths due to the uh, rain-led landscapes and, and uh, landslides that would follow. He said even his own house had lost um, its roof, adding that he was in complete mercy of the hurricane. Uh, seven minutes later, he reported he'd been rescued. Well, Maria's eye uh, reared over the island late Monday uh, before the storm briefly Dipped to a Category 4, there was some relief that perhaps it was losing its strength on e- early on Tuesday, but it quickly resumed its extremely dangerous Category 5 uh, status. And, of course, Puerto Rico is right in its crosshairs. Well, Jeff Sessions uh, was in the United was in Oregon today, I should say, in Portland, in fact, the U.S. Attorney General. Uh, denounced sanctuary cities, of which Portland is one, during a speech to federal and local law enforcement officials. Hundreds of protesters gathered hours before the the attorney general arrived at the United States Citizenship and Immigration Services Portland Field Office in the Pearl District. We are in the midst of a um, multi-front battle, an increase in um, violent crime, a rise in vicious gang activity, an opioid epidemic that is taking an American life every 10 minutes, and threats from terrorism combined with a culture in which uh, family and discipline seem to be eroding further and a disturbing disrespect for the rule of law, he said. And by the way, you can go to KGW.com and they have a full transcript of his remarks. It was not a public speech. Uh, he referenced the case of Jose Morales, who was uh, shot and killed in southeast Portland in July, and Sean Scott Jr., who was fatally shot during a robbery at Portland's Holiday Park in April, as examples of what he called rising violent crime in Portland. He argued that in order to reduce violent crimes in America, cities like Portland have to drop sanctuary policies. Mayor Ted Wheeler has proclaimed Portland a sanctuary city. Such policies undermine the moral authority of law and undermine the safety of the jurisdictions that adopt them, he went on to say. Well, Sessions referred to the uh, case of Sergei Martinez, who was accused of attacking two women in Portland late last July. Martinez is transient, had previously been deported from the U.S. 20 times, according to court records. Federal immigration authorities properly lodged a detainer against Martinez just a few months before, asking to be notified when he was uh, to be set for release, but authorities in Oregon refused. In a statement following the arrest of Martinez, Multnomah County Sheriff Mike uh, Reese said the sheriff's office couldn't hold Martinez any longer because ICE processed a civil detainer and not a criminal warrant signed by a judge, which 
uh, they um, know cannot be legally used in Oregon, Reese said. The sheriff's office followed um, uh, state statute and federal case law in handling the suspect, Reese went on to say, but had to release him consistent with the orders of the court. What the federal government is asking for is to be notified some hours before that release, not that the individual be retained, but that they be notified that he is about to be released. Well, Sessions called the uh, policies of sanctuary cities lawless and said they do more to shield criminal illegal aliens. That makes a sanctuary city a trafficker, smuggler, or gang member's best friend. Well, Portland's Mayor Ted Wheeler said the city of Portland does not appreciate Sessions' Uh, stance on sanctuary cities. Wheeler did not meet with Sessions and instead had a letter hand-delivered. Sessions is the second member of the uh, Trump administration, the cabinet, in fact, to visit Portland. Linda McMahon, the administrator of the um, U.S. Small Business Administration and former CEO of World Wrestling Entertainment, visited Portland back in July. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 21 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the latest health care bill under Senate consideration would basically take $1.2 trillion in Obamacare funding and turn it into block grants for the states to manage, according to Republican uh, Senator Ron Johnson, speaking on CNN's Newsday today. Johnson said that the Graham Cassidy Heller Johnson bill whew, is uh, getting close to the minimum 50 Senate votes needed to pa- for passage under the reconciliation process. If 50 Republicans do vote yes, Vice President Mike Pence would cast the tie-breaking vote. But this would be just like Obamacare, passed by one party to the exclusion of the other. Well, co-sponsor Dean Heller said that each state would decide how to use the money, whether it's for their own version of Obamacare, a single-payer system, or a different program. Senator Rand Paul, Republican senator, tweeted that he is a definite no vote saying that Graham Cassidy keeps Obamacare and tells the states to run it. No, thanks. Well, Paul tweeted on Monday that he also tweeted that no conservative should vote for a rebranded trillion dollar spending program just because it adds some block grants. And finally, keeping 90 percent of Obamacare is not OK and it's not what we ran on. Conservatives should say no. Paul went on to tweet. Well, Senator Johnson told CNN that his plan is uh, better than nothing. And isn't that what we all want? Something that's better than nothing. I would just argue you're going to be uh, facing a binary choice, leaving 100 percent of Obamacare in place or taking what we can get and then working with the governor's long term. Well, Johnson said the Republican sponsored bill will remove decisions from Washington and give states significant latitude over how the dollars are used and take care of their residents. Well, uh, uh, the Senate Finance Committee chairman Orrin Hatch announced on Monday that he will hold a hearing on Monday, the 25th at 10 a.m. to learn more about the Graham Cassidy proposal, the latest uh, iteration of health care reform offered by the Republicans. Now, by the way, there are other versions. There's the insurance stabilization plan. That effort was spearheaded by a Republican and a Democrat. It's a rare, broad, bipartisan health care push. It seeks to shore up the rickety individual insurance market, repairing a part of the Affordable Care Act. Then there's the single-payer plan. That bill would create a national government-sponsored health care system in an effort to extend coverage to all Americans. Uh, That's the Bernie Sanders uh, version of that bill signed on to by uh, 16 Democratic co-sponsors. So those are the options that are currently being considered with a hearing uh, taking place on Monday the 25th uh, by Republicans to learn more about that plan. Now, as you may know by now, tomorrow we are uh, partnering with Open Doors USA in their effort to provide Bibles to persecuted Christians. And we've been sharing little glimpses 
of the stories of some of these uh, believers who have been persecuted for their faith. In these stories, you hear a little bit of the struggles that they face. And I just want to give you an opportunity to stop and think for a moment to whom we are focusing our attention and our effort to provide them with Bibles. Here's a story that uh, it takes us to Eritrea, where thankfulness is the response of one woman who suffers greatly for her faith. It was so cold during the night, you would suffer hypothermia. So hot during the day that your skin would burn to the edge of the container. The bugs that bite you felt like fire all over your body. But like driving a nail into wood, every hit, every beating, every blow to my body drew me closer to God. These are some of the notes I took when I had a chance to spend a few days with a lady called Helen Bahani. What you don't understand or what you don't get when you first meet Helen is her past. You see, Helen spent two and a half years locked inside a metal shipping container for refusing to recant her faith. And not only that, she taught me one of the most profound spiritual lessons of my life. She taught me about thankfulness. If you were to wake up tomorrow with only the things you thank God for today, what would you have? In Helen's case, every day for two and a half years, she woke up on the floor of a jagged metal shipping container inside a prison where she was beaten and tortured regularly. But one of the most incredible stories for me is her response to a beating that very nearly took her life. You see... Helen had been writing notes of encouragement and sending them to the prisoners, putting scriptures on them could memorize. And the guards came to her and they said, Helen, where is your Bible? And she said, I don't have one. And they said, is it in your head? She said, yeah, it's in my head. And they said, well, we're going to have to beat it out of you. They proceeded to grab Helen and, and they dragged her to a courtyard, placed her in the middle and started to beat her with wooden battens. What she does next has single-handedly changed my Christian walk forever. You see, in the middle of this beating, Helen stops and looks at the guy hitting her and says to him, I do not hate you, for you are just carrying out an order. But you need to know that I'm carrying out an order too. And that's not to renounce Jesus, so carry on. carry on I mean when they were finished beating her they simply threw her body back into the metal shipping container and as she lay on the floor in the container she began to sing the following thank you for the cold nights thank you for the hot days thank you for the hunger for the sickness thank you for the bugs that bite my body thank you lord Thank you. Thankfulness. Have you ever stopped for a minute to think about what role it plays in your life? I mean, what role thankfulness plays in your everyday? If you're like me, it's probably not much. You see, I ask God for a lot. But in comparison, I thank Him 
for very little. The more I think about people like Helen Bahani and the persecuted church, the more it begins to dawn on me that it's actually reversed. You see, they thank God for almost everything. And in comparison, they ask him for very little. And this is because they're not following an institution called Christianity. They're following a living God. We're following a living God who walked the earth and who today walks the earth through his spirit. Our gratitude, our thankfulness, and the level by which we measure it should not be based off a set of rules or expectations and buzzwords, I guess, created by this Christian pop culture. It should be defined by Jesus Christ who walked with broken people, loved the unlovable, stood in the face of religion, led with a character and set of principles that he would not compromise for any one or any deal. Didn't seem to care about things like brand, fashion label, return on investment, number of friends on Facebook or followers on Instagram. And didn't mind looking awkward if saying no meant the right outcome was achieved. And on top of all that, loved a dying and broken world with a passion that could not be filled, stopped, watered down or contained. Jesus Christ, the Saviour of the world, who ultimately laid down His life so that a sinful, broken and dislocated group of people could have eternal life with Him. And for that, I'm forever thankful. If you were to wake up tomorrow with only the things you thank God for today, what would you have? Join us tomorrow as we partner with Open Doors USA and give you an opportunity to provide Bibles for folks who desperately need them, in this case, in Eritrea. I should mention that um, she and her daughter were uh, granted asylum in Denmark in 2007, 12 months after her release. So praise God for that. Coming up, we're going to talk with Peter Brooks. That's uh, in the five o'clock hour. Carrie Garcia, the founder and CEO of Freedom Movement. We'll tell you more about that. And we'll talk with Joe Dallas. He's the uh, author of a column, the Is Gay Christian an Acceptable Identity, an article that first appeared in Christian Research uh, Institute uh, magazine. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, let's see. It's about 36 minutes after four o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. By the way, coming up later this hour, we'll talk with Peter Brooks, Senior Fellow in National Security Affairs at the Douglas and Sarah Allison Center for Foreign Policy at the Heritage Foundation. We'll talk about the president's address to the U.N. earlier today. Well, the Senate Intelligence Committee has invited President Trump's personal attorney, Michael Cohen, to testify in an open hearing next month. After his team shared a statement with the press against the committee's wishes, well, the panel scheduled the October 25th hearing uh, today after abruptly canceling a transcribed interview that Cohen was to undergo with committee staff on Capitol Hill. Well, committee chairman Richard Burr uh, and uh, the vice chairman Mark Warner, a Democrat and a Republican, issued a brief statement saying they suspended the interview after Cohen decided to preempt by releasing a public statement prior to his engagement with the committee staff, in spite of the committee's request that he refrain from public comment. Well, the committee expects witnesses in his investigation to, uh, in this investigation rather, to work in good faith with the Senate, the statement later added. 
Well, after Cohen's appearance was rescheduled, Burr told reporters he did not think the panel would need to subpoena the attorney. Well, Cohen's statement, which was released to the press uh, this morning in advance of the scheduled interview, blasted what he described as the intentionally salacious and totally fabricated anti-Trump dossier compiled by former British spy Christopher Steele and published by BuzzFeed News in January. Well, the dossier claims that um, Cohen had uh, secret... uh, meetings with the Kremlin officials in August of last year in Prague and played a key role in a secret Trump campaign Kremlin relationship during last year's election. I have never engaged with, been paid by, or paid for, or conversed with any member of the Russian Federation or anyone else uh, to hack or interfere in the election, Cohen's statement read. Well, he added that in his uh, proximity to Trump as a candidate, he never saw anything, not a hint of anything, that demonstrated his involvement in Russian interference in our election or any form of, form, rather, of Russian collusion. I am certain that the evidence of the of uh, at the conclusion of this investigation will uh, reinforce that fact uh, that there was no collusion between Russia, President Trump or me. Well, we'll find out more when he has the hearing that was supposed to have been held today in October and which presumably under oath, perhaps uh, he will be called upon to answer specific questions put to him by the committee. I mentioned yesterday that there was a farm family that had been uninvited, if you will, from the farmer's market with only a few weeks remaining. Their source of income was uh, simply drying up. Well, a federal court issued an order that requires the city of East Lands to allow that farmer to return to its 2017 farmer market, farmer's market rather, after the city officials developed a rule for the purpose of keeping him out because of his marriage views. The city ousted Steve Tennis and uh, uh, Country Mills Farm after reading a post on his Facebook page that expressed his religious belief regarding marriage. Just like all Americans, a farmer should be free to live and speak according to his deeply held religious beliefs without fear of government punishment, the Alliance Defending Freedom Legal Council. Kate Anderson said, who argued, by the way, in favor of the order on behalf of the tennis family on Wednesday. As the court found, East Lansing officials changed their market policy to shut out Steve because they didn't like his Catholic beliefs regarding marriage. The court was right to issue this order, she went on to say, which will allow Steve to return to the 2017 farmer's market while his uh, case moves forward. So the case has not been decided, but they have allowed him to return to the market in the waning weeks of the season. The city of East Lansing must allow plaintiffs to participate in the East Lansing Farmers Market for the remainder of the 2017 season. The U.S. District Court for the Western District of Michigan, South Division, wrote in its order in County Mill Farms versus City of East Lansing. On the evidence before this court, the city amended its vendor guidelines and then used the changes to deny Country Mill's vendor application. There exists a substantial likelihood that plaintiffs will be able to prevail on the merits of their claims for speech retaliation and for free speech of free exercise rather of religion end quote. Well, that issue is an unconstitutional, unlawful, and I'm quoting here from the attorney representing the tennis family, and complex policy that city officials adopted specifically to shut out this family and County Mills Farms, his family's fruit orchard, purely because he posted on Facebook that he believes in biblical marriage as between one man and one woman. The city did this even though tennis, his family and orchard are in Charlotte, 22 miles east of uh, uh, from East Lansing, well outside the city's boundaries and beyond its jurisdiction. Well, after seeing tennis Facebook posts from August of 2016, city officials took several actions to drive him out of the market. First, they told him that they did not want County Mill Farms at the next scheduled market, and they warned him that 
uh, protests would occur if his farm continued to participate. Tennis is a military veteran, decided to continue to uh, serve as customers at the market. No one protested. That didn't change city officials' resolve that Tennis could no longer participate in the market due to a statement of his religious beliefs. Well, at least for now, they'll be able to sell their wares, rather their produce at the market, and we'll just see what happens uh, next. One of the things I failed to do yesterday um, was when I had uh, as my guest in studio um, the author of Mom Strong. I had Heidi St. John in studio with me. She's a very popular conference speaker and author and blogger at The Busy Mom. She speaks all over the country. She shares encouraging, relevant, and biblical truth with women. She and her husband, uh, Jay, are the founders and executive directors of Firmly Planted Family, an organization focused on family discipleship. Uh, she and her husband live in Washington State. They uh, ha- are raising and have raised seven children. Well, I mentioned her book is just out, but failed to mention that they're having a special celebration to launch the book, Becoming Mom Strong Tonight. That's going to be at the Lacamas Lake Lodge in Camas, Washington, 6.30 p.m. to 9.30 p.m. And you're invited to this very special evening to celebrate the launch of Becoming Mom Strong, pray over the project, celebrate the sending of this message into the world. There's going to be music. Music and swag. I'm not really sure what swag is, but it's going to be there. Hors d'oeuvres, giveaways, and lots of fun. In fact, they say tons of fun, so you might want to bring a scale with you. The first 25 people in the door, you'll receive a free signed copy of Becoming Mom Strong, which is absolutely worth um, uh, having. So whether you're there to purchase, whether you're there to purchase, or you're there just to um, free stuff. Clark just told me swag is free stuff. Thank you. I no, I thought, you know, I'm thinking of swag that you hang on your Christmas decorate. Thank you, Clark. He apparently is uh, someone who pursues free stuff, so he would know. Anyway, that's uh, tonight. Again, at Lacamas Lake Lodge. Uh, that's on Northeast Lake Road in Camas, Washington, 6.30 p.m. tonight to 9.30 uh, p.m. And it's going to be a great time. You can celebrate Becoming Mom Strong, the release of the book, and all the things that go with it. Okay, in just a few moments, we're going to talk with uh, Peter Brooks. He's a senior fellow in national affairs, national security affairs, rather, at the Douglas and Sarah Allison Center for Foreign Policy. We'll talk about the president's speech before the U.N. He had some rather strong words uh, that were offered, and we'll um, analyze that just a bit. And then in the five o'clock hour, we'll talk with Joe Dallas. He's the uh, author of a number of books and pamphlets. But we're going to talk about an article that appeared originally in the Christian Research Institute uh, magazine, Is Gay Christian an Acceptable Identity? You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back 50 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, President Trump uh, threatened to destroy North Korea if the country fails to abandon its pursuit of nuclear weapons, delivering a dire warning during his first address to the United Nations General Assembly. It was his first speech, and he launched a rhetorical uh, broadside. Uh, Mr. Trump referred to a depraved regime in North Korea, calling it its leader, Kim Jong-un, by a nickname, uh, Rocket Man. The United States has great strength and patience, he says, but it is forced to defend itself or its allies. We will have no choice but to totally destroy North Korea, Mr. Trump said to world leaders. 
uh, saying that uh, Kim Jong-un is on a suicide mission, not only for himself, but for his regime. Just a few of the words given by the president earlier today in his first address before the U.N. General Assembly. Well, here to to, uh, join us to talk about that address, Peter Brooks, who's senior fellow in national security affairs at the Douglas and Sarah Allison Center for Foreign Policy at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us. First of all, your assessment of the president's speech. I think it was big and bold. Uh, and I think the things that he, he said, he probably had said previously, but he kind of clues it all together in, in one speech to the uh, to the body of 193 nations that make up the uh, U.N. General Assembly. Now, it, explain for listeners who aren't familiar with the U.N. General Assembly what that particular body uh, was gathered for and how significant this speech was by a U.S. president. Well, the General Assembly, the U.N. is uh, isn't in session all year round. Uh, it's like a part-time legislature in a certain sort of way. U.N. Security Council has uh, representatives there. There are missions in New York to the U.N., but the, the bulk of the work is actually done between September and December every year. Uh, and that's where you'll see large delegations go to New York. Uh, I, I served there myself many years ago as a, as a junior advisor. Uh, they, they send a lot of people up from Washington. Other countries do. The city is abuzz with, uh, with diplomats. They try to get the, the work done other than other emergency sessions uh, that, are, that take place. So everybody was there. Not every president or prime minister or head of state was there. For instance, the Chinese president wasn't there at the time, uh, nor was uh, President Putin of Russia. Uh, but majority of them are. And many of them will make uh, speeches, and there will be opportunities for meetings as we've seen from the, the news uh, with, uh, with just with President Trump. But there'll be other things going on. So that's why it's important. The General Assembly is when everybody, the whole Assembly, uh, gets together fully staffed uh, for uh, three or so months of, uh, of work. Now, President uh, Trump, of course, was speaking to uh, the United States, but really speaking to North Korean leaders, speaking to Iranian leaders. Uh, this is significant because it outlines for them what they can anticipate from this current administration with regard to some of the controversies that we're, we're facing. For example, he excoriated Iran, calling it an authoritative regime, denouncing the nuclear disagreement, uh, disarmament, I should say, agreement between Iran and six world powers. Um, uh, your thoughts on, on that uh, particular um, set of, of thoughts but from the president? Yeah, well, you know, I think he was a little bit more comprehensive about Iran uh, in terms of uh, he's expressed concern about the Iranian nuclear deal since the campaign. Uh, and uh, what, he's, what he said today didn't seem to be tremendously different other than he said it to a, to a different audience. It was a bit more comprehensive. It, it characterized the Iranian regime in ways that you dis- described, masquerading as a democracy, corrupt, uh, the terrible things that the, the mullahs have actually done economically to its own people, human rights repression, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and I think, but I think the big thing out of that is the president is saying that uh, the United States may leave the nuclear deal. Uh, he feels that it's such a terrible deal. I think he called it an embarrassment, if I, if yes, I recall he did. correctly. People can read the speech themselves, but it, you know, it's uh, he called it an embarrassment, and he doesn't feel like it was a good deal. And it does have it does have a lot of shortcomings. Uh, he didn't say he was going to. A lot of people are taking this a little too far, Junior, I think, in, in my view. They're saying things like, for instance, on North Korea, I would disagree with your characterization a little bit. He said if we have to defend ourselves, that means we're not going to nuke uh, North mm-hmm. Korea. But if we have to defend ourselves, in other words, if they were to send a nuclear missile in our direction, that could mean that we would uh, use nuclear missiles in return. 
uh, we wouldn't wait, you know, we wouldn't allow it to be unanswered. So I think it wasn't saying, you know, if you don't give them up, we're going to do that. I think we're going to nuke you. I think you're saying if you try to nuke us, we will, we will definitely, um, you know, it will end badly for you, Pyongyang. One of the things the president did, and I appreciated him clarifying before this august body, what America first means in the context of his leadership here, but in the context of every one of those nations represented by their leaders or uh, or their delegates, uh, what it means to represent the interests of your respective uh, sovereign nation. Yeah, and I think it was a, a bit of a shot across the bow, what people are calling the new authoritarians, uh, you know, China. There's not really a new authoritarian, but, you know, you see in Russia, Russia's definitely moved more uh, stridently in that direction. Uh, the democratic experiment in Russia is over. Uh, the rise in troublemaking of, of North Korea, Iran, uh, is, an, is another country that, that, comes to, that comes to mind, what's happening in Syria. Uh, so I think, you know, this was, a, you know, a, an expression towards them without particularly uh, naming them. And I, I think he, you know, when some people criticize the president for using the word term rocket man, uh, you know, perhaps he didn't want to mention Kim Jong-un's name, which he didn't in the speech, uh, to legitimize him, uh, to recognize him, because he's an illegitimate leader of that country, which is a dictatorship. So I think the president has concerns, and he feels that sovereignty comes from the people and not from a government. Mm-hmm. And if you're not democratically elected, then you're not a legitimate government. The president also singled out Cuba and Venezuela, saying of Venezuela that the U.S. had applied tough, calibrated, diplomatic and economic sanctions against Mr. Maduro's government, wanted other countries to add their weight, and made the point that this was not a, a failed attempt at socialism, but it was, in fact, a faithful application and implementation of socialist yeah. principles. That was a great line. Yeah, it was. I loved it. He basically said, it's not because they didn't apply it correctly, it's because they applied it faithfully, mm-hmm. uh, that it's such a failure. I mean, I was just, I'm sitting here writing, I'm writing, I write for the Boston Herald, and I'm writing a column about the president's speech right now, and I was I was thinking about that, and I used to write a lot about uh, Hugo Chavez, who was a real troublemaker, as you recall, as the president of Venezuela, and, and who would have thought that things would be worse in Venezuela than they were under Hugo mm-hmm. Chavez, uh, and that's where we're at today. So he wasn't talking, you know, Venezuela isn't a security threat to the United States like North Korea or Iran is, but it's, uh, it showed his interest in the, uh, in the humanitarian side of uh, foreign policy, where people are uh, suffering for, you know, uh, un- un- non-commonsensical reasons. Uh, Venezuela has a, a long history of democracy. It has been one of the most prosperous countries at times in this uh, in this hemisphere. Uh, so, I mean, it's just it's just ridiculous that it, that it's in the sort of situation today where people of Venezuela are going hungry and there's food shortages and things along this line yeah. because of policies that are imposed by the government. Now, the president did not criticize China or Russia by name. He did. Uh, say that he rejected threats to sovereignty from Ukraine to the South China Sea, but he thanked right. both countries for backing a U.N. resolution imposing sanctions, new sanctions on North Korea. Your thoughts regarding his uh, his approach to China and Russia? Well, I, uh, I think he was right to thank, uh, thank them on North Korea, perhaps to encourage them. He's been critical mm-hmm. of them in the past. But he also didn't let them slip by because of what, you know, Ukraine, Crimea with Russia and the South China Sea with China. So I think it was it was pretty it was pretty balanced. Um, he, and of course, it's interesting he didn't call them out on Ukraine or South China Sea, but I think everybody knows who they're talking about, which made the president look more in the standard uh, way of being a diplomat at the U.N. where you, you criticize somebody without naming them, which I think is kind of farcical in general. Uh, but, uh, you know, in this way, he kind of played with diplomatic there and said, OK, I'm talking about these two things. You know who I'm talking about and we'll just move on. 
But I think he also, you know, he realizes that there's opportunities for cooperation and there's uh, there's opportunities for confrontation, I think, out there. And I think he was calling for more on the side of cooperation uh, among these countries to deal with the, the major international problems that face us. We've got about 30 seconds. How was this speech uh, okay. received by those who were in attendance and those here in the U.S. who who heard the president's words? That's hard to say. It's kind of a Rorschach inkblot test, right? <laughs> I mean, you're going to see or hear what you want to hear. Like I said, I've corrected a lot of people who said, you know, we're going to attack North Korea and we're going to leave the Iran nuclear deal, which the president did not say. Uh, you know, he may have hinted at that. He may have inferred about those things. He may have laid down some warnings and threats uh, about these issues, but he did not say some of the things that people are saying. But uh, people will hear what they want to hear. I think uh, from my perspective, it was a big and bold speech. Well, I thank you so much for uh, taking the time to talk with us about it. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Again, Peter Brooks is Senior Fellow in National Security Affairs at the Douglas and Sarah Allison Center for Foreign Policy. We've got news and traffic coming up here at the top of the hour. Next hour, we'll talk with Carrie Garcia about a women's event coming to uh, uh, River West Church in Lake Oswego this weekend. And Joe Dallas on his uh, column, Is Gay Christian an Acceptable Identity? We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Six minutes after five o'clock. We're glad to have you with us. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. James Blend is producing. Later this hour, we'll talk with Joe Dallas. His uh, article is Gay Christian and Acceptable Identity. Uh, he'll join us later uh, in this hour. Now, there's a, an event coming to the Portland area for women. It's a two-day event. And you're invited to come relax and enjoy stories from other women. Some encouragement, laughter, art, treats, incredible music. Well, we're talking about the Misfit Tribe Tour that's coming to Lake Oswego this weekend. Here to talk with us a bit about that is Carrie Garcia. She's the founder and CEO of Freedom Movement. uh, And their Misfit Tribe Tour begins uh, here in Portland on Friday night. Hey, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Well, first of all, let me ask you to uh, explain for our listeners what the Freedom Movement is. Uh, it's a, you know, it's an organization that we created about three years ago, and we pretty much exist to help liberate women to walk into victory. And one of the ways we do that is uh, through large-scale events and conferences. We do it through a couple of other avenues, too, like workshops and curriculum. That, And we're actually opening up a center in 2018, a counseling center to be affordable, life coaching and counseling for any woman. But one of our main avenues of, of how we reach women, both believers and non-believers, is through these events, these tours that we put on. And we kind of travel around and get to do that. Well, your Facebook page says that the Misfit Tribe Tour was created to give all of us, referring to women, who feel like we just don't fit. We want to create a space where women from all walks of life can enter a room and feel less alone. I think many Mm. of our listeners can relate to that. What can they expect as a part Mm. of the misfit tribe? You know, I I was reading in uh, God's Word, and as I was reading it one day, I I started realizing, like, man, there's a lot of misfits in this Bible. (laughs) And I just started realizing that God chooses misfits to change the world. It's not the ones that have the perceived perfection. It's the ones that really are in um, kind of a broken place and in need of God, and His restoration ends up propelling our story. And so that's kind of why we created this tour of going, like, is there anybody else out there that's maybe feeling a little bit alone? 
alone or maybe feeling a little lost or like they're on the outside looking in, what would it look like if we created a space where they could hear from real women and real stories, so less alone and what they're struggling with, and then be empowered by God's Word to live out their best life. And so when they come to one of our events, it really is for believers. It is to encourage them in their faith, but it's not just for believers. It's also for the non-believers in your life, the women that are hurting. Uh, we try to create a space where your guard will be taken down and you will be just loved right where you are and seen for who you are. And we do that through a lot of um, laughter and stories, stories from God's words and stories from other women. And so you can be for sure that you're going to encounter just a really an atmosphere of kindness and love and disarming of God's Word that God is for you and He's not against you. And I think for so many people, they they might have the conclusion that they've gone too far for God's love, or maybe that they have to have that perceived perfection to be seen by God, and that's just not true. Well, describe for us this two-day event. We're talking about Friday and Saturday, this Friday mm-hmm. and Saturday. So what can women expect? Yeah, yeah well, you're going to expect expect to hear great stories, um, lots of laughter. Uh, I am a comedian as well, so uh, we, we do lots of laughter from my own life. <laughs> and you're going to hear stories from God's Word. And in fact, one of the stories that we're talking about is the woman that found at the well. There's going to be worship. Uh, there's going to be some breakout sessions on Saturday where we're going to talk about dealing with anxiety and also dealing with some shame. And we have some um, therapists that are going to come and share that. We're going to have a panel discussion to answer questions, just really creating an atmosphere where you can come and go, man, I want to, I'm going to leave here different. I'm going to leave here more hopeful. So for two days, we're just going to kind of create a space of refuge and a space of encouragement for any woman that would want to come. Now for listeners who are finding out for the first time today that there's an opportunity Friday night and Saturday to come together for this kind of uh, wonderful event, what's the best way for them to, uh, to participate? Well, you can go to wearefreedommovement.org. And they can just click on the ticket leak, uh, ticket leak, leap, uh, uh, click there, and they can get their tickets, and they can also read more about the event. It's at River West Church. We're actually partnering with that church, so I'm really excited um, about that. And, and they're going to really do some lot of aftercare after we leave, because who cares about an event if there's nothing to help them afterwards? So River West has uh, really come alongside us, and we're partnering together. So they can even find out more information um, at River West um, Church um, website as well. But wearefreedommovement.org is where they can go and read more about us and, and get their tickets. And it's like 40 bucks for two days. And Friday night, you get a free ticket for that woman in your life that you've been wanting to bring to church but just haven't been able to or you're a little nervous. This would be the event to bring them to, especially for Friday night. Um, so you can buy, buy that bundle ticket for 40 bucks. Um, I think it's 25 bucks uh, yeah. for each day separately. So yeah, um, yeah so the, the bundle package, you save $10, which is nice. <laughs> well, and as you pointed out, uh, Christian women might be drawn to this kind of an event, but don't be, don't hesitate to invite someone who is not a follower. Maybe they're a seeker, someone you know could mm-hmm. use some encouragement. This is an opportunity to bring them along because that Friday night ticket, you get a second one free. I happen to mm-hmm. know that River West is a wonderful church where you're going to find a warm, mm-hmm. welcoming environment and, and uh, women who will make you and your guest feel uh, very comfortable. This is just going to be yeah. a, a joyous weekend for women. Uh, who just need to be together to experience joy and uh, the, to recognize hope and their purpose, to live in confidence mm. 
uh, to be unafraid to be fully known as uh, your uh, website suggests. Now, again, yeah. you can uh, you can go to the website, and I know I have it written down here, but maybe you should just say it while my pa- my face yeah, no is worries. looking for we it. Are, we are freedommovement.org. You can find out all the information on there. And by the way, I did put that uh, web address on my Facebook page, so if you are driving or otherwise don't have anything to write with, you can go to the Georgine Rice Show uh, Facebook page, and I put that website on there as well. And keep in mind, you can get a, a Friday free ticket to bring someone along with you. My guess is they're going to mm-hmm. want to come back the second day, but it's a great way to introduce them to a, 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 an environment of church that isn't exactly mm-hmm. church that they might be more comfortable uh, with. Well, I'm yeah. so delighted that you are coming to our area and uh, calling women to come together for a, a tremendous uh, weekend of encouragement and mm-hmm. all of the things that we need when we come together. Yes. Well, I am so thrilled. We're beyond excited. We could use your prayers. We really do want that extra ticket to be the thing that you can use. Uh, we'll do the heavy lifting. You just bring them and we'll take care of them. The Holy Spirit will do the rest. But man, we, we really need you to link arms with us and, and bring that friend. That's our heart. That's our heart. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. And we look forward to welcoming you to our area. Thank you, Jardine. Thank You're you. So awesome. <laughs> bye bye. Okay. Again, Bye-bye. Carrie Garcia is the founder and CEO of Freedom Movement. You can look them up and learn more about uh, the Freedom Movement and the Misfit Tribe Tour that's uh, again coming to Portland this Friday and Saturday. They're touring around the country. They're going to be at River West Church in Lake Oswego. And again, that's a, a place you're going to find very comfortable, warm, welcoming. They're hosting this event, but it's not exclusive to River West. They're inviting you to come along. And you can learn more about that at the website, wearefreedommovement.org. All the important details are there. So check it out. Well, coming up next, we're going to talk with Joe Dallas. He is an author, a conference speaker, an ordained pastoral counselor. He's the program director of Genesis Biblical Counseling in Tustin, California, which is a counseling ministry for men dealing with sexual addiction or other sexual relational problems. He has a master's degree in Christian counseling from Vision University in San Diego. He's a member of the American Association of Christian Counselors, and he's also the author of the daily blog, Joe Dallas Online. He is a reliable source on... Uh, issues relating to sexuality, and he's going to join us in just a moment to talk about a, a column that he wrote uh, that appeared in Christian Research Institute's magazine, Is Gay Christian? The, the, the idea, the phrase, an acceptable identity. It's very well written and I think helps give clarity to those of us who want to be biblically sound uh, and also um, want to, to counsel in a way that's uh, honoring to Christ those who might use that moniker. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Recently, I had occasion to read a column that originally appeared in the Christian Research Institute magazine, Is Gay Christian an Acceptable Identity? It was written by Joe Dallas, and I find him to be a reliable source on issues related to human sexuality. He is consistently biblically sound and wise in his approach. And so I asked him to join us today to talk about uh, that column. Now, Joe Dallas is an author. He's a conference speaker and ordained pastoral counselor. He's the program director of Genesis Biblical Counseling in Tustin, California, which is a counseling ministry for men dealing with sexual addiction and other sexual relational problems. He received his master's in Christian counseling from Vision University in San Diego, is a member of the American Association of Christian Counselors. He's also the author of the daily blog, Joe Dallas Online, which is certainly worth reading, and occasionally will hold an online webinar as 
as he did earlier this month when homosexuality hits home. He joins us today to talk about his column that was written uh, some months ago, uh, but is very relevant today. Joe Dallas, thank you so much for joining us. It's so good to be talking with you again, Georgine. Well, I appreciate your wisdom in helping Christians navigate some of the thorny issues with regard to human sexuality from a biblical approach. And uh, as I mentioned, I read your uh, column on uh, Is Gay Christian an Acceptable Identity? and wanted to uh, give you an opportunity to talk a bit about this, because I know uh, many followers of Christ don't quite know how to approach the issue of how to um, uh, how to address someone who identifies as a gay Christian. Uh, you begin the, uh, the uh, article um, talking about a, a conference that you spoke for on sexual purity when a man approached you and made a comment that uh, was startling to you and certainly was to me as I read it. Can you kind of recount that encounter with a man who identified himself as uh, a boy lover and a Christian? Yeah, Georgine, I was speaking at a conference on recovery, and afterwards a man approached me, and he said he appreciated what I had to say, that he himself was in recovery, and that he was a boy lover. And I was flabbergasted and asked him if he could clarify that a bit, and he said, well, I'm sexually attracted to boys, but I'm a Christian, and I know it would be wrong to act on those attractions, so I abstain from them, but I'm a boy lover. And we got into a long discussion about the way we identify ourselves, first of all, whether we as Christians should, uh, according to Scripture, identify ourselves according to any particular sinful tendency, and secondly, whether we should ever apply a positive term to a sinful tendency, because, of course, there's nothing wrong with being a boy lover. If you love boys, as you love children, you want what is best for them, and you want to see them raised healthy and whole. That is certainly not an accurate term for a pedophile. Mm. When somebody is sexually attracted to children, much less exploits children, that person is not a boy lover. That's a boy abuser. And the sexual attraction to children should never be called love. So my twofold concern was, first of all, that he was identifying himself by a sinful tendency, and secondly, the fact that he was minimizing the sinfulness of the tendency by referring to it as love. And the point I was trying to make in the article, as you mentioned, Georgine, was that today there is a growing movement within the Christian population, and I should say within the evangelical Christian population, to embrace the term gay Christian. Now, I want to make a distinction here, because gay Christian can refer to people who identify as Christians and are sexually active uh, through homosexual uh, relating. In other words, they're sexually active lesbians and gays who identify themselves as Christians, and they basically take a revisionist approach to the Bible, whereas they say the Bible doesn't really condemn homosexuality. That's one movement hitting the Church, the revisionist movement. But another movement, which is much more subtle, and I think that Christians are much more susceptible to, um, is the re-identification movement, the movement of identifying as a gay Christian, one who does not act on his homosexual desires and realizes it would be a sin to act on those desires. Well, that's good. I agree so far. But then turns around and identifies himself or herself by those desires, which I think is an error, and refers to those desires with a positive term like gay. 
So my concern, again, is with an over-identification with a sinful tendency and, and the minimizing of the sinfulness of that tendency uh, by referring to it in positive terms. This is a movement, I think, is growing. Uh, gosh, there are at least a couple of new books on the market uh, now, Georgine, by people who identify themselves as gay Christians who are not acting on their homosexual desires, but still see themselves as part of a community of believers based on the shared experience of having homosexual attractions. And as someone who himself repented of homosexuality back in 1984, I'd have to say, I'm glad nobody ever suggested to me that I should identify myself in that way. I had been a very active part of the gay community from 1978 to 1984, and when I repented, it was very clear to me that I was not a gay Christian. I was a Christian who experienced homosexual temptations and was called by God to do what all Christians are called to do, mortify the temptations of the flesh while seeking to live a sanctified life and fulfill God's will. And that's really the primary way I believe Scripture tells us to identify ourselves. If you were to use this same principle and apply it to other areas in which Christians sin, and we all have our own unique set of tendencies that uh, God has called us away from, it would sound absurd to identify ourselves first with the thing that we struggle with the most and then add to that uh, the, the, the moniker of, of Christian. Why do you think that has become a popular uh, idea when it comes to sexuality and in particular same-sex attraction? I'm not sure. I'm a little puzzled by this myself, but I think at least a part of it is a way of making a concession to those same-sex attractions. I really think that there is such a thing, Georgine, as holding on to your sin, even if you are no longer acting on it, by basically identifying yourself both by it and with it. With it. Because, see, if I call myself a gay Christian, I am basically saying I am a part of a community of people who identify likewise, and we find our common ground based on our sinful tendency. We, in essence, huddle together based on that sinful tendency. We introduce ourselves somewhat by that sinful tendency. And uh, to me, it's got the feel, at least, of Lot's wife looking back Mm -hmm. on Sodom as it's destroyed. I I really, uh, without trying to be overly sarcastic, I think if we in the Church embrace the idea that people who wrestle with homosexual temptations should identify themselves by those temptations, and that we should encourage that identification, and people thereby should, quote-unquote, come out and embrace the gay Christian identity, it's almost as though we're introducing a sanitized gay pride parade within the body of Christ. Mm. And my feeling is that if a tendency is sinful, we should recognize it as a manifestation of the flesh, which we do not uh, refer to in positive terms, and we certainly don't identify ourselves with. I think a key verse to go by is um, uh, Romans 4.3, where Paul asked a question we should ask about almost any issue. What saith the Scripture? And you know, Georgie, you'd be hard-pressed to find any place in the New Testament where anyone is identified in positive terms by their sinful tendency. Now, Paul 
was very clear in referring to himself as the chief of sinners. He said that, yes, I'm a, a sinful man. Well, I'll buy that. I'll be the first to say that. That's me to a T. But um, uh, when it gets to the specifics of what the sinful tendencies are, you just won't find that in the New Testament. And there's a reason for that. It's not meant to be found. Mm. You suggest, we're going to take a break here in a moment, but you suggest that making that connection uh, uh, implies a, a sort of a positive spin, and it, it uh, poses a danger to those who might identify by that particular sin in perhaps falling back into that area, even if they acknowledge that this is outside of the will of God. I, I would agree, and that is a, a strong concern I have with this as well. I, I think it would be unfair for me to say if someone calls himself a gay Christian, he is automatically eventually going yes. to default to homosexual behavior. But I certainly think it can be a stepping stone, and I can think of a few examples where that very thing has happened. Well, we're going to continue our conversation in a moment, but I do need to take a quick break. Again, we're talking this afternoon with uh, Joe Dallas. He's the author of a, a column that appeared in uh, CRI, the magazine, some uh, some months back, Is Gay Christian an Acceptable Identity? You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 37 minutes after 5 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking with Joe Dallas. He is an author, a conference speaker, pastoral counselor, and he's the program director of Genesis Biblical Counseling in Tustin, California. We're talking about a, a column that appeared in the Christian Research Institute asking, is gay Christian an acceptable identity? You make reference to a situation some of our listeners might be familiar with at Wheaton College and some growing trends that we're seeing within the body of Christ. Can you recall the Time Magazine um, report on Wheaton College's dismissal of an openly uh, lesbian um, employee? I remember that very well, Georgine, because I happened to know uh, the woman the article was about, Julie Rogers, and uh, she had been a colleague at one time, and uh, she began identifying herself as a gay Christian although she still held the position at the time that homosexual behavior was outside of God's will. And so she was hired by Wheaton because of her expertise on this issue, even though she did identify as a gay Christian. But eventually, and eventually didn't take very long, by the way, she shifted her position to the point where she began supporting same-sex marriage. And uh, very shortly after that, uh, came out as openly lesbian and uh, approving of lesbianism, as opposed to just saying, I'm a gay Christian who resists my lesbian tendencies. And she was dismissed from Wheaton for a violation of their policies. Time Magazine wrote very sympathetically of her and wrote about Wheaton as though they were very oppressive, but really they were only being consistent with their standards. The reason I brought her up in the article I wrote for the Christian Research Institute is that uh, uh, it does seem that in her case, at least, identifying as a gay Christian was a stepping stone towards completely embracing homosexuality because it was a beginning of putting a positive uh, spin on homosexual desires. Now, just uh, about a week and a half ago, I read a heartbreaking blog by a woman called Monica G. And uh, Monica and her husband had done interviews earlier this year in which her husband identified himself as a gay Christian, and they identified themselves as being in what was called a mixed orientation marriage, in which one partner in the marriage was attracted to the same sex. And 
They did say at the time they felt homosexuality was not God's will, it would be wrong to give in to it, but he still identified himself as a gay Christian. Uh, that was earlier this year. Now they are divorced. He has left his family and is embracing homosexuality and uh, uh, has publicly declared himself to be gay and gay-affirming. And Monica, in her blog, wrote that she regrets the fact they referred to themselves as a mixed-orientation marriage. And more to the point, she regrets the fact that he adopted the category or the label gay Christian because that was the beginning of legitimizing homosexuality. Now, I want to be fair here. You know, Georgine, you and I both know people need to be able to be honest, okay? Mm -hmm. I, I think it would be a terrible thing if in a church someone wrestled with homosexual temptations and felt they could not admit those temptations to anyone. That's wrong, because all of us are dealing with some kind of sinful tendency, some sort of temptation. We should have a place within our own churches where we can confidentially speak to either a support group, uh, an accountability partner, a pastor, a prayer group, and say, hey, these are the temptations I'm struggling with. Please pray for me and support me. We should all yes. uh, have that available to us. And that definitely includes the Christian who struggles with same-sex temptations. But there's a big difference between a Christian who struggles with same-sex temptations and a Christian who identifies himself by those temptations, especially in a positive way. Uh, you uh, write about the Gay Christian Network. It's an organization of believers who identify either as uh, homosexuals believing that, that uh, that's approved by God and those who identify as same-sex attracted but believe that this is something God disapproves of, that they hold annual uh, events with uh, prominent speakers. Um, uh, and, and again, it emphasizes sort of a positive um, spin, perhaps. I'm, I'm not quite sure how to put it, um, on the yeah. notion that there's same-sex attraction uh, and that being the identifier and how you associate and fellowship with others. Georgine, the Gay Christian Network uh, is made up of people who call themselves Side A Christians and those who call themselves Side B Christians. The Side A ones embrace homosexuality, act it out, and call themselves Christians. The Side B Christians are the ones who are attracted to the same sex, and they call themselves gay Christians, but they don't act on those attractions. Now, a problem I have with this, in addition to the problems we've, we've talked about so far, it reduces the seriousness of the issue. There are some things, Georgine, we can agree to disagree on, no big deal. If you think the rapture of the Church is pre-tribulation, and I think it's mid-tribulation, good grief, we're not going to break fellowship over that. One person may be charismatic, another may be a cessationist. You know, I almost want to say, who cares? But there are some issues we can't be in communion together over when we have disagreement on them, and this is one of them. I, I believe that... Uh, Sexual standards are primary issues, not secondary issues, mm -hmm. uh, like whether or not you should drink alcohol or whether or not you should go out dancing. The first case of church discipline involved sexual sin. Paul wrote to Corinth that if a brother or a sister is involved in overt, ongoing fornication, you can't even be in fellowship with that person. The Gay Christian Network positions itself as basically saying we can all fellowship together whether we are acting on our homosexual desires and believe that they are right or whether we believe they're wrong and we're abstaining. We're all basically gay Christians, so we can all worship under one tent. And this, I believe, is unbiblical and actually dangerous. So 
again, I think that the revisionist movement, uh, a lot of the church can see through that and won't buy it. They attempt to rewrite the Bible to legitimize homosexuality. But the re-identification movement is much more subtle. And I've had very solid Bible-believing pastors write to me about some of these books coming out and say, hey, this looks good to me, what do you think? And I have to point out, you know, anytime someone is identifying himself as a gay Christian, that should send up some serious red flags. Mm. You quote uh, Francis Schaeffer in your article, tell me what the world is saying today, and I'll tell you what the church will be saying seven years from now. Um, I, I think many in the church are very vulnerable because we want to be sensitive, we want to do the right thing, and yet fidelity to Scripture is oftentimes sacrificed uh, in favor of being accepting and sort of following uh, the culture. The danger if the church does not hold to what the scriptures teach, speaking the truth in love? Well, the, the huge danger in that, of course, transcends homosexuality. Yes. It has to do with sound doctrine itself. Whenever we decide that we know better than what scripture has already plainly stated, we are on some very, very shifting sand there. It's not a good foundation. I would encourage our listeners, uh, we have a link to the uh, article we've been referencing, Is Gay Christian an Acceptable Identity? You can read it in its entirety. It's very well written. I appreciate that you're very even-handed and uh, really challenge us to do and say the right things and and to approach our brothers and sisters who struggle with same-sex attraction as we struggle with many other things uh, in a way that's Christ-honoring and helps all of us to Uh, to walk in a manner that's worthy of our calling. Uh, Joe Dallas, thank you so much for joining us today. Always a pleasure talking with you, Georgine. Appreciate it very much. Again, you can uh, follow Joe Dallas. He has a blog and, and, uh, again, always has uh, great insight. It's a daily blog, Joe Dallas Online, and the article we've been referencing. Uh, If you want to, uh, to help... Um, communicate a biblical view on the subject with someone who may be struggling or has made a decision to identify um, according to their sexual orientation as a Christian. This may help you kind of think that through. All right, we're going to take a break here in just a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. One thing I wanted to mention quickly, uh, yesterday I had the privilege of having a, a very bright, devoted young woman on the program, Heidi St. John. She, as you might recall, is a popular conference speaker. She's an author, a blogger at The Busy Mom. She speaks all over the country, sharing encouragement, relevant biblical truth with women, And she and her husband are the founders and executive directors of Firmly Planted uh, Family, an organization that's focused on family discipleship. She's the mother of seven children. A couple of them are grown. Others are still in the home. Uh, But she is the author of Mom Strong. And I neglected to mention when she was here with me in studio that tonight... Uh, there is a special evening with Heidi St. John to celebrate the launch of that very book, Becoming Mom Strong. They're going to pray over uh, the project, celebrate the sending of the message into the world. There's going to be music, swag, hors d'oeuvres, giveaways, tons of fun. The first 25 people in the door will receive a free signed copy of Becoming Mom Strong. And that is tonight, 630 to 930 at the Lacamas Lake Lodge in in uh, Camas, Washington. That's on Lake Road. You can find out more uh, on the uh, on the MomStrong website, but it's the uh, the uh, becoming MomStrong launch uh, party. And uh, just wanted to let you know that you are invited to be a part of this event. Just looking to see if I have any more details. Uh, but anyway, that's tonight. And I, I apologize for failing to mention that yesterday when she was right here. 
uh, in studio. As I mentioned, she's uh, uh, responsible for the very popular blog, The Busy Mom. You may also find details about that there as well. But that's uh, tonight, 6.30 p.m., all the way up till 9.30 at the Lacamas Lake Lodge in Camas, Washington. Well, as you may have uh, gathered by now, tomorrow we're partnering with Open Doors USA. It's an organization that's sole focus is to encourage and support persecuted Christians around the world. They provide all kinds of support. And as you've heard earlier in the program today, if you listened in the first hour, uh, you know, for example, that in Syria and in Iran, uh, they support some 24,000 persecuted Christian families in those two countries alone. Well, in our partnership with them, uh, which will express itself more fully tomorrow during our Radiothon, they've given us an opportunity to help them provide Bibles to those who uh, who are without them. And we're talking about persecuted believers. And I wanted to uh, just give you a glimpse of what to anticipate as we uh, focus on this uh, this subject, this family business tomorrow during the program with this uh, song and story. Um, Jaden Lavick is the uh, is the musician, and this once again gives us an opportunity to think about what's going on in the lives of believers this very moment, who are suffering persecution for their faith, many of whom do not have God's word. There's a true story of a small village in India. And in this village, there was this family that came to a saving faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. This agitated the village so much, and everybody became so upset that an angry mob gathered and shoved them into the public square. The village chief confronted them, and he said to the man, If you and your family will not recant your faith, you all will surely die. The man didn't know what to say or what to do. And so the only thing that came to mind for him were the words of a song that he himself had composed when he had first surrendered his life to God. And so he began to sing, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. And with that, horrifically, his children were killed. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning was given another chance, this time with his wife's life on the line, and yet he continued to sing, though none go with me, still I will follow, no turning back, no turning back. Though none go with me, still I will follow, though none go Turning back 
After her tragic death, he was given one final opportunity, this time to save himself. And yet he continued to sing. Even though that man and his family died on that day, something remarkable happened. A seed was planted in the heart of that village chief, a seed that began to grow over time and eventually he called the community together in that very same neighborhood, in that very same square, and he renounced his former faith and declared his allegiance to Jesus Christ. And a celebration broke out in that moment, and the gospel began to flourish and to grow in that community, not just in that village, but across the whole region. Because they had seen real faith, and they knew the true character of God because of a family that believed and sacrificed, even under the penalty of death. Tomorrow on the program, we're going to focus on men and women of faith who have resolved that they will stand firm as the scriptures encourage us all to stand firm. What they need is the encouragement of God's word. Where does the strength come from? These are men and women of faith who have had a personal encounter with Christ. They are filled with his spirit. And the one thing they long for that you and I can help provide is a Bible, God's word, encouragement, direction, reassurance, all the things we enjoy And don't give much thought to because we have access to virtually every kind of Bible one might imagine. So tomorrow, as we're partnering with Open Doors, we're going to encourage you to help us place Bibles in the hands of believers like the man and his family you just heard about. Now, you can go to kpdq.com right now. Click on the um, Open Doors banner at the top of the page. And there you can uh, you can give a gift. We're suggesting a gift of $50 to provide 10 Bibles for those uh, in persecuted areas around the world where they otherwise would not have access to them. And I would also encourage you to listen in to tomorrow's program. We're going to be joined by the president and CEO of Open Doors. He'll have an opportunity to talk about the ministry and how much they need us to come alongside and partner for the sake of those who have given their all to follow Christ. I hope you'll join us. I want to thank uh, Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, James Blend for engineering a portion of and producing all of today's program, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Good night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.
Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.